Hello and welcome to The Scoop, a provincial newscast and podcast with stories from LJI journalists around British Columbia. Each week, reporters from Revelstoke, Cortez Island, Kootenai, Terrace, Prince George and Smithers will share the news affecting their place in BC. I'm your host and producer, Pamela Hassan from CSEK News and Smithers. The Scoop was made possible by the Community Radio Fund of Canada and the Local Journalism Initiative Program, or LJI. Follow The Scoop on CICK Smithers Community Radio, 93.9 FM, every Thursday and Saturday at noon, online at smithersradio.com, and of course, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Dan Messick from CICK News and Smithers, and you're listening to The Scoop in Prince George, Revelstoke, Kootenai, Smithers, Terrace, and Cortez Island. On today's episode... Vista Radio will absorb 21 interior BC radio stations after Bell Media announced a major restructuring of the company. Stations in the communities of Fort St. John, Fort Nelson, and Prince Rupert will all be acquired by Vista Radio. The purchase is pending a CRTC approval, which could take place in about a year. Ian Gregg at CFUR in Prince George will bring us more. Newcomer Hungarian couple has big ambitions for the community theater on Cortez Island. That story coming to us from Lonnie Taylor at CKTZ on Cortez Island. In Kootenai, Scott Onyacek will bring us a story about the Nelson Committee on Homelessness announcing that the Coordinated Access Hub will be shutting down in March due to insufficient funds. Stay tuned for that one. And the new Seven Sisters Mental Health Facility has opened its doors in Terrace this past month. Sabrina Spencer from CFNR will dig into that one. And finally, Pam Hassan at CICK News and Smithers will give us an update about the rezoning application that could pave the way for a new supportive housing unit in Smithers. Stay with us. So what does it take to create a housing project in a town the size of Smithers? You heard in my conversation with Will George that finding that Goldilocks zone in a small northern town has been difficult to nail. After Tuesday's council meeting where the public spoke out, the feedback from the gallery was more supportive than I've seen at these meetings to discuss a BC supportive housing project thus far. There are currently nearly 60 people who need a safe, warm place to live. This project will provide 37 units on top of the current 22 units available at Goodacre Place. This project could help the majority of people currently living homeless with what Ms. Goldvine calls a housing first approach toward feeling safe and secure. Here's my interview with Sarah Goldvine from BC Housing Now. My name is Sarah Goldvine. I'm the Vice President of Corporate Affairs at BC Housing. So Smithers is back at the table with BC Housing for another attempt to provide housing for those currently or at risk of homelessness. Can you tell me about this latest proposal? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we're just we're so, so pleased to be able to bring this proposal forward. Um, and our staff in the community have been working closely with partners, in, including um, the town of Smithers. What we're looking at right now is um, bringing forward a new project on Alfred Avenue, so pretty central, that would bring 40 new homes with support services 24-7 to the community of Smithers. And purchasing private developments and creating non-market housing units in established neighborhoods, it's a strategy that BC Housing has successfully implemented in communities across the province. But can you tell me what successful implementation looks like? Yeah, I mean, ultimately what we're looking for is we're we're looking to bring folks indoors and 
the reason why we do all of that is that BC Housing, we believe everyone deserves a place to call home. And we know that when we can make that happen, communities are more likely to thrive. So success looks like ensuring folks have a roof over their heads, have a stable and secure place where they can sleep at night, where they can be connected to community services, to healthcare, have, have meals. And it also looks like ensuring the surrounding community is healthy and vibrant and thriving, which we which we know can happen when it's more likely to happen when folks have a place to stay. Yeah, absolutely. When I spoke to Minister Kellen, actually mentioned that going hand in hand is not just a roof over a head, but also food security, access to programming. I guess, do you know what the auxiliary features of this building would be aside from a place to live? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's so important for, for most of us when we think about home, we don't just think about four walls and a roof, right? We think about a place where we feel supported, where we feel safe and secure, where we feel like we belong. And that looks different for different people. So for supportive housing, what, what we're creating is a space for folks that need some additional services and support to be able to really stabilize and be healthy. Usually what that looks like is we've got, well, we always have staff on site 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We always provide, we always provide meals, we provide access to laundry, and we provide connections to community services like addiction services, healthcare services, life skills, training. And that looks a little bit different in every community, depending on the needs of that community. Mm -hmm. Now, according to uh, BC Housing's own 2023 homeless count, there are, it said there are 57 people currently experiencing homelessness in Smithers, and this unit is proposing 40 units. Yeah, I mean, we're we're always looking to bring as many folks indoors as we can, right? That's why we do this work. Um, but we also need to recognize that we want all of our projects to be successful. And so when our team worked with the town and assessed the needs, um, the needs of the community, as well as what we can what we can provide on that specific site on Alfred Avenue, we felt that 40, 40 homes will make a significant difference for the community of Smithers. And we're just, we're really looking forward to be able to work with partners and with the local community to be able to make these homes happen. Mm -hmm. Last year, when BC Housing and the Town of Smithers held a community feedback meeting about turning the Capri motor in on Highway 16 into supportive housing, how vital is community support on a project of this importance? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'll be frank. We we always we all part of the reason why we do community engagement is because often in communities around the province, uh, people people get concerned about supportive housing if they don't understand the project, right? Um, so we want to have open conversations with community to be able to share with them what supportive housing is and how it can help. At the same time, it's always a two-way conversation. So as part of as part of that conversation with the, with the with the community and with the town, we were able to identify that there were different ways forward to be able to ensure that we did bring the housing to the community while also recognizing the specific needs of Smithers. So we identified this new site and it's aligned with the town's official community plan, which is really great. It ends up being a win-win for everyone. Mm -hmm. Sir, was there anything that I didn't ask that you think is important to include in this conversation today? 
Yeah, I mean, one thing I also think is worth really shining a light on is the importance of the discussions that BC Housing has been having with the Wet'suwet'en. Certainly, we see in in you know in the housing system we see fo- we see the ongoing impacts of colonization, including the residential school system and the disproportionate. So it's been really really valuable to be able to partner and have good conversations with the Wet'suwet'en to ensure that we can bring forward culturally informed services that that work for folks who have been unable to secure housing because of that ongoing trauma. This is just one last thing, Sarah. Mm-hmm. Do people have to stay sober in order to stay in the in the units? BC Housing takes what's called a housing first approach. So we find that it's really important to bring folks indoors and provide them with a safe and secure place to stay so that they can build a healthy build a healthy life and be connected to services. It's really difficult to do that if you're sleeping outdoors, particularly in a place like Smithers that gets really, really cold in the winter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we find that Housing First is the approach that works well in BC, and that's being proven around the world. It's not unique to BC. Mm-hmm. Um, in some communities where we have a very large number of supportive homes, we're able to create more specialized, more specialized sites that are tailored for folks that are further along their recovery journey. Ultimately, though, our goal is to ensure that folks can come indoors so that we can connect them with those health services and being able to really ensure that, you know, often people who receive these services, their voices are not listened to because they're, they're focused on surviving. They're not focused on showing up to city council meetings yeah so as much as possible it's really important that people are able to people who are connected with that community people who want who really want to support this are able to share those perspectives so that we can have a really balanced and informed conversation in the lead up to the council decision on the on the 13th and then the third reading in march Coming up next, Sabrina Spencer tells us her story about the Seven Sisters Mental Health Facility in Terrace. In Dawalawan, I'm Sabrina Spencer with The Journey Continues, highlighting local stories that matter to you. In Terrace, Seven Sisters, a regional mental health facility, has just announced that the new, bigger mental health facility has just opened in Terrace. Claire Hart, the Director of Specialized Services in the Northwest Health Service Delivery Area in Northern Health, spoke with CFNR about some of the new features in the facility. We announced yesterday that we moved into the new Seven Sisters facility in Terrace, and it's a new, much larger facility that supports people with complex mental health and substance use concerns. Can you tell me a little bit more about the added features to this facility compared to the old one? It's definitely a much larger facility. I think it's actually close to double the size of the old facility. And it's really modern. So it's got new modern furniture and equipment, a couple of different new features where we've got different recreational spaces, much larger treatment rooms, and actually an added multi-sensory room, which we're really, really excited about, both the staff and the residents. There's also an increase in your beds for this facility as well. Correct. So the previous facility had 20 beds and the new facility has 25. And with that, we've had an increase in staff numbers to support the residents. And we've changed a little bit some of the staff patterns of work where we have an increased coverage for our rehab team across seven days per week. 
You also have five residential rooms. What is that exactly? We have apartment-type spaces. That is a new and added feature for the facility. And those spaces are to support people who are moving through the system um, into more of a apartment-style setting so that it's a transitional setting so that they feel more comfortable when they move out into community, into a more independent living space. Is there anything else you'd like to share or add with us at all today? I just think that it's really exciting for the communities in the Northwest and for Northern Health staff generally to have such a new and beautiful space to support people who have mental health and substance use concerns. And, and we're all really excited, residents included, to work, live in that space. Residents and um, staff have already moved into the new facility? Yes. And is there going to be like any type of grand opening or anything at all for it? Actually, we're, we're going to be having conversations in the coming week with local First Nations around appropriate cultural practices to commemorate the new building, as well as engaging on appropriate and representative artwork as part of the larger North Memorial Hospital project. This story is brought to you in partnership with the Local Journalism Initiative of Canada. You can see the full story at FrequencyNews.ca. Up next, Scott Anyacek brings us his story from Kootenai. Last month, the Nelson Committee on Homelessness informed the public that the Coordinated Access Hub at 521 Vernon Street will be closing in March because of a lack of funding. The hub acts as a central location for the unhoused and vulnerable population to gain access to harm reduction services and other programs. Joyce Doms from the Nelson Committee on Homelessness says what the community is losing is a place for people to feel welcome. So what we're losing is a centralized location, sort of, I guess, that one-stop shop, a place for people to come and feel welcome. There's somebody there maybe to talk to, their peers, and connect with their support people. Dom's also mentioned that several of the programs that people go to the hub to gain access to will continue. This includes coordinated access, which helps people find housing. Anchors will still be in operation on Baker Street with overdose prevention services. And the street outreach team will still be active in the community. Despite several programs still being in operation, Dom says losing the hub is a huge loss. Things that we take for granted as people that have homes to go home to, um, that they can come in if it's pouring rain outside or if it's snowing or if it's in the summer and it's really hot and you just need to get out somewhere, sit down and, and have a place to be. I think that is a huge loss. As for what's next for the Nelson Committee on Homelessness and the hub, Dom says they are still viewing this closure as temporary and considering alternative ways for providing these services like downsizing and finding other sources of funding. Our hope as a committee, as the Nelson Committee on Homelessness, is that this is just a pause rather than an end to something and that, you know, we're continuing to look at, you know, how can we make this work? Can we downsize what we had temporarily? Find a different location? Find some temporary funding? You know, we still have some funding allocated through the Reaching Home program, but just not enough to keep what was currently in place. Reporting in Nelson, Scott Onischuk, KCR News. This is a CKTZ News Update. I'm Lonnie Taylor. Manson's Hall is hosting a new theater group. The organizers have very ambitious plans to offer the group Fridays and Saturdays for the next two months, at which point they will decide on a theatrical piece to perform to the community. I caught up with organizer Beatrix Batashi to find out more about this ambitious theater programming. 
So it's lovely to meet you. Are you new to Cortez Island? Yes, we arrived last uh, last spring. So not that not as not that new, but still new, but <laughs> not as much. Fabulous. And you are bringing a very ambitious theater program to yes. Manson's Landing. Yep, that's right. So it's it's mostly my husband. So he's the boss. And what's his name? Aaron Betashi. Aaron, but you can say Aaron. Beautiful. <laughs> where are you guys from? Oh, so we are Hungarian. Our native language is Hungarian. But awesome. we came from Romania. So we grew up and born in the territory of Romania. That was detached from the Hungarian Empire, Hungarian Austrian Empire after the World Wars. So the borders changed, but there's still lots of Hungarians in Romania. Aaron, however, he lived a lot in Hungary too, over 20 years in Budapest. So that's... And we have both of the citizenships. So it's for us, Hungary and Transylvania, the, that part of Romania is the same. We, we just cross borders. So it's a bit complicated. Did you move to Cortez Island directly from Romania? Yes. Not quite. So there was a lot of plans that changed. So we ended up in Cortez Island in April. We knew that we want to move to Canada. We wasn't sure where. And then we there is this workaway thing where you offer some kind of work for a family and they give you accommodation and you can live with them. It was purely an accident, serendipity, if we could say. So, okay, so back to the theaters. Aran, yeah. your husband is their partner? Yes, so he's my husband. He's the boss. Like he's yeah. So what is the plan for this theater group? Okay, I will start with him and how with his background a little bit. So he started theater even in high school. He was always interested in theater. And then uh, he was part of a theater group in Budapest for like 11 years or something. And then he started his own company. So he actually started off with training students for the admission to the big Budapest uh, acting uh, university. So that's a very huge deal because in Budapest, everyone wants to go there if they want to become an actor and actress. And there are thousands of people who want to want to go there but there's only 12 seats and wow and it's very like, it's very selective really hard to get in so Aaron started off with uh, training people to go there to the admission exam and he had quite a success he had I think I don't know he had several students that got admitted after he trained them and then so how many years did he do that business oh gosh so it was five years that he did this and in the meantime he also so it started to form a theater group that's how like all the people who wanted to be admitted they eventually became one big group and they started making performances it was a very alternative place in Tuzraktir it is the name uh, in Budapest. After his theater group was formed, he went to the university in Turgumuresh and he did directing for five years. What's the name of the university? The University of Arts 
Turgumuresh. And he did the bachelors and then also he did the masters in the art of directing. Awesome. And then I I did the bachelor uh, first in costume and stage set design. And then I did my master's in acting. Wow. Okay. So you are both quite qualified. It's really fun. We also did together theater camps and lots of, just lots of workshops. And of course, performances together too. Lonnie Taylor, CKTZ News, Cortez Island. This is Ian Gregg reporting for CIFA Radio's Due North on 88.7 FM. This initiative is made possible by the Community Radio Fund of Canada through the Local Journalism Initiatives Program. Find our news stories online at frequencynews.ca or cfur.ca. Bell Media, through its parent company, BCE Incorporated, recently let go of 45 regional stations across Canada this February 2024. Vista Radio has announced its intent to take over 21 of the stations located in BC's interior. The purchase is pending following CRTC approval, but Vista currently owns about 40 stations. This is a significant expansion. Vista President Brian Edwards joins us over the phone today. Brian, this expansion will take on roughly 80 new employees. What kind of logistics are you planning in order to manage this exponential growth? Well, uh, there's a lot of things. First of all, most most of the stations are, well, all of the stations today are, are computerized and on various platforms. So while, while we wait for the commission, we'll be uh, formatting stations with new equipment so that uh, we can just move our stuff in and move Bell's stuff out on the day of close. Uh, in terms of people, we'll uh, certainly be talking to people over the course of time. It's a long time to wait. This one could be up to a year. So, you know, we've, we've already sent messages out that we intend to keep everybody and actually grow the uh, grow the size of the workforce because I think these markets, most of them are uh, underutilized. And um, that's going to be our approach. So you actually plan to retain all the employees and, and not necessarily immediately lay everybody off. I'm sure that's a sigh of relief for a lot of people who've been very concerned for, for quite a while. There's a presence in Fort St. John, Fort Nelson. That's right. Yeah, we have stations in Ontario, Alberta, British Columbia, and Northwest Territory. Moving northward in our province, how do you think the media landscape in these regions will be altered with this transfer? Will, will there be an increased focus on local news content, for example? Oh, absolutely. That's uh, That's been the key of our success is uh, our people live in the communities that uh, they work in, obviously, and uh, we're part of the community, for sure. And if you're part of a community, obviously what's going on in that community is very important. So local news for us is number one. In fact, we carry less than 10% national news on our radio stations because everyone has access to national news in many, many forms. So why repeat something that is available somewhere else? And it seemed like with the larger corporations, uh, especially local news was something that just didn't have much of a focus. In that theme, I'd like to quote recent comments by Premier David Eby. He said, Corporations like Bell have overseen the assembly of local media assets that are treasures to local communities. And he went on. They bought them up like corporate vampires. They sucked the life out of them, laying off journalists. They've overseen the 
crapification of local news by laying off journalists. And now they say it, it's no longer economically viable to run these local radio stations. It's no longer economically viable to have investigative news. I'm curious, Vista Radio is certainly much bigger than our own station, like a little nonprofit, but it's also much smaller than something like Bell Media, a large media entity within Canada, one of the, the big three telecom giants. Where, where do you see Vista's role within the Canadian media landscape? Well, I think uh, the simplest answer I can give you is that we are focused on one business stream, and that's small and medium market radio, along with uh, each of those uh, stations has a, a web presence, obviously. It is the era of, of digital. But we don't have any other business streams, so our focus is totally, and our livelihood is totally uh, dependent on good local radio. And that's, I think, the difference between how we operate those stations and how a larger corporation might operate them. Uh, let me expand on that because this is a huge difference between the way we operate and many other companies. We have local management in almost every community. And if we don't have management in community, it's found in a, an adjacent community where there's another uh, station of ours. Those people make a lot, like 90% of the decisions of what goes on in the air what charities we're going to promote, what uh, community events that will be on the air, places that we go uh, in the community. So all of that's local. And, uh, you know, larger corporations kind of over-centralize their management, and we've done the opposite, which is why I think we've been successful. I see the value of radio as a communication platform, as a medium of information. But as you said, we are in the digital age. How does the relevance of radio fit in within your model? How come you haven't transferred completely to a purely online presence? What keeps you anchored in the medium of radio? Well, radio is uh, is 100% portable. It's, uh, it's, I don't have to tell you that. I mean, uh, every vehicle has a radio in it. You can take radio wherever you want to go. It, uh, it's an entertainment block as well, and it just keeps working. The yeah. other answer to your question is, again, I guess it's, it's a basic difference between online information and over-the-air information. You don't have to actively do anything to listen to radio because listening is passive. You actively have to read online material, and that is the difference between the two mediums. It's no different than you have to actively watch television whereas you can relax and uh, passively listen to radio. And, you know, the people who say no one listens to radio uh, really don't know what they're talking about. In fact, tuning, since uh, people have gone back to work, has is, is actually gone up, not down. That'll be because of travel time in, in larger markets. But radio's not dead. It's uh, We're doing well. Traditionally, radio stations and media entities have predominantly received the lion's share of their revenue from advertising is that vista's central bread and butter or well, advertising is the only thing we've got <laughs> excellent you mentioned how it's benefited vista radio to kind of decentralize its content do you feel like that model would have been possible say 20 years ago or has the advent of the internet and quick communication and meeting over distances enabled that type of model to emerge? No, I, I um, 20, 25 years ago, uh, I managed those stations uh, in much the same way that uh, Vista's managed. 
you know, there are certain decisions that are centralized, but uh, what goes on on a radio station in, in a smaller community outside of the large cities is really important. And it's important that what we put on the air is done by people who live and know people in the community. So uh, I actually ran most of these stations <laughs> uh, almost uh, 25 years ago. I'm no stranger to the marketplaces. And uh, do you ever get any time to hop on the air and do any DJing yourself? No, I haven't done that for a few years. <laughs> I sometimes get interviewed live, but uh, no. Gotcha. Had to ask. Thank you so this much. This is Ian Gregg reporting for Seifer Radio's Due North on 88.7 FM. This initiative is made possible by the Community Radio Fund of Canada through the Local Journalism Initiatives Program. Find our news stories online at frequencynews.ca or cfur.ca.